Hey, welcome to the Church Split. What's up, heretics? My name's Brian, and tonight we are going to talk about a fun topic. But first we get to that, uh, don't forget to do all the YouTube things, like and subscribe, five-star review, blah, blah, blah. Um, or don't do it. Doesn't really matter. <laughs> Up to you if you want to see more content. If you don't want to see more content, then don't subscribe and probably stop it right now. But if you're up for watching it, um, then definitely stay tuned. So today's topic, if you saw the thumbnail, is about evanescent grace or sometimes called temporal grace. It's a concept attributed to John Calvin and Calvinism, um, but it's not talked about that often. And usually when it is, it's used as a club against Calvinists, which we'll be kind of using today. But um, first, I want to steel man it, make sure that we're applying the definition and the terms correctly. So what is it? Evanescent grace means uh, tending to vanish like vapors. So it describes someone who may think themselves to be saved by grace and yet still lost. In other words, they feel and may even appear to have saving grace for a time, but like vapor, they fade away. So why is this important? Well, this addresses what happens to people when they apostatize, which means leave the faith. So an apostate is someone who renounces Christianity, which requires them, one, to be a Christian first. Um, at least that's how I would use that definition. I know some, some people just say apostatize means they're not a believer, um, or they renounce Christianity as never having believed in the first place, like an atheist. But I would, I would go with apostatize requires someone to have been a Christian, at least in some form. Um, and we'll get into the, that form as we go on, what those forms are. This gets into the broader subject of once saved, always saved, or perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is the P of tulip um, and is commonly used by Calvinists um, or those of the Reformed doctrine or doctrines of grace, however you want to put it. Once saved, always saved is essentially, I would say, an offshoot of it in some ways, although a lot of people that hold to that wouldn't say that. But essentially this idea that once you're a Christian, that you have true saving faith, you are saved you are born again Christian, that there is no way that you will not be a Christian any longer. Um, which I held to for many, many years, and there's definitely some biblical evidence for that. But we also struggle with some of the ideas of, well, why are there warnings to Christians about leaving the faith? Why are these warnings against apostasy? Why are there ways to identify false teachers and apostates? If once you're in the club, you're in the club forever. Um, so essentially we really, Christians really struggle with how to handle when people walk away from the faith. We have talked about it a number of times, including our most popular videos on the channel are about Christians that have renounced their faith. Um, and what do people do when someone walks away from their faith? Well, you really end up in one or two camps. You either say they were never saved to begin with, or they're still saved and they don't know it yet. They don't realize it. They're just backslidden or whatever, and they'll come back. Uh, but there is technically a third category, and that is the category that someone can apostatize and actually lose their salvation. They can reject it. Um, they can, and I, that's the camp I would fall in. And if you want to understand where Will and I stand on this in a much deeper dive, we have this episode here um, that goes into the topic of eternal security, once saved, always saved, and we examine all the verses. So if you're expecting a huge deep dive into all those verses, don't today because we've already addressed most of those. But I fall into the third camp of those that I think can fall away and completely reject the Holy Spirit within them. 
And I don't think it's something they can do accidentally. Okay, so what does John Calvin say? There's several quotes from him using um, the term evanescent or portraying this idea of what is attributed to the idea of evanescent grace. So anyways, let's do at least one of the quotes here, which is from the Institutes of Christian Religion. Um, and he says, Sometimes, however, he communicates it also to those whom he enlightens only for a time, and whom afterwards, in just punishment for their ingratitude, he abandons and smites with greater blindness. So what does this mean? So God's enlightening someone for a period of time. He's giving them, this is an act of God, he's giving them this understanding to some extent of him, of the gospel, of Jesus, but it's only for a short period. What is that period of time? Well, Calvin's not sure, and uh, so we're left guessing. And obviously, I think we'd see, if we apply this and just assume this is correct, when you see people that walk away from the faith, it does seem to happen at all different times. Sometimes it's right away, sometimes it's after years. We've seen pastors like Joshua Harris that have a very long ministry and then end up being an atheist. How do we handle that? So their punishment is to still not be saved, which is kind of funny to me. And they're given even a greater blindness. So they're blind, totally. De they're born totally depraved, right? Or this idea of total inability that um, Calvinism would espouse, which is this idea that the gospel message is ineffectual to everyone at birth. And some people throughout their life will be regenerated and given this form of grace so that they can believe. And they will believe because God has changed their nature so that they can. The rest of us, the rest of the people that are non-believers have no ability to have the gospel message be effectual. All other messages from all other religions in the entire world can be effectual to the reprobate, the unbeliever, the unregenerate, except the actual truth. Which is kind of interesting because when you talk to someone who believes in Calvinism and you maybe have a friendly debate with them, I think there's this... There's this shared assumption that truth will win out, that you can show someone the truth and they'll go, oh yeah, okay. Now we can see people are more estranged to the idea of converting their their opinion based on evidence, but we all have this kind of shared understanding that given enough evidence, people will change their mind. The truth wins out with given the proper evidence in the right way. But to a Calvinist, if they believe in total depravity, which they're a true Calvinist, they do, they don't believe that they anyone even has that ability to believe in the gospel in a way that it would be effectual to their, to their salvation. So, Calvin's saying that this is done as a punishment for their ingratitude, that this, this removal of this enlightenment and their continuation as non-elect is a punishment of their ingratitude. Their ingratitude for what? <laughs> Think about that for a second. God, before the beginning of time, said... John Doe will not be saved. But he decides during John Doe's lifetime to enlighten him to some ideas of the gospel, Christianity, so much so that he even can fool himself and other Christians to the point of looking like a Christian. And But it is temporal, and eventually that person rejects Christianity, and God is essentially punishing them for their, for their ingratitude of being enlightened in this way that would never have effectual um, 
result in their salvation. So it's kind of a weird thing to punish someone over, right? It'd be like me going to my 12-year-old son and giving him a calculus textbook and saying, hey, I'm going to show you how calculus works. And then when he doesn't figure it out, and I go, well, I'm going to slam this textbook on your face because this is the punishment for not having gratitude for me showing you the calculus that you have no chance of understanding. Does that seem like a just, loving, merciful God? I don't think so. Calvin does, and Calvinists do think that. So to their credit, they do think that. Um, and then Calvin here is saying that they were not elect in the first place, but they're given a punishment because they're not elect, and they have ingratitude for being enlightened that is ineffectual. And God is going to further blind them with even greater blindness than they already had that they were born with. doesn't really address also the 2 Corinthians part where Satan is the one actually blinding us. Because if we did, did see the glory of God, we would believe. So, little I don't see how those things could technically mesh. But I'm sure Calvin believes that they did. And I'm sure he wrote about it that I haven't seen and prepped for tonight. But let's just give Calvin the benefit of the doubt that he is able to reconcile Satan blinding the unbelievers with the idea that we are born already blind and unable to. All right, second quote from John Calvin here. Just to try to steel man this as much as possible. He says, Still it is correctly said that the reprobate believe God to be propitious to them insomuch as they accept the gift of reconciliation, though confusedly and without due discernment, not that they are partakers of the same faith or regeneration with the children of God, but because under a covering of hypocrisy they seem to have a principle of faith in common with them. Nor do I even deny that God illumines their mind to this extent, and they recognize his grace, but that conviction he distinguishes from the peculiar testimony which he gives to his elect in this respect, that the reprobate never obtained to full result or to fruition. When he shows himself propitious to them, it is not as if he had truly rescued them from death and taken them under his protection. He only gives them a manifestation of his present mercy. In the elect alone, he implants the living root of faith, so that they preserve even to the end. Thus we dispose of the objection that if God truly displays his grace, it must endure forever. There is nothing inconsistent with this fact of his enlightening some with a present sense of grace, which afterwards proves evanescent. So, what is he saying? God gives the unbeliever the idea God is acting favorably towards them, then believe they have eternal life. They accept this gift of reconciliation, which doesn't really make sense when you think about reconciliation because they're not actually reconciled because reconciliation is, is something that a believer who is saved has. They are reconciled to God. I don't know how they'd be reconciled without that. But somehow this gift, they aren't actually reconciled, but they have this gift of reconciliation. They are confused. And we're going to get to some things that James White said in a little bit. He also will echo this. This idea of this confusion is a characteristic of being temporally graced. They don't have discernment. Perhaps this means they keep on sinning. Perhaps this means they avoid certain verses. James White's going to make that claim. Um, and they don't have the same faith of regeneration of Christians, who Calvin calls the children of God. What they do have in common is this principle of faith. They act like they believe. God has illuminated their mind, which 
seems like a reference to Hebrews 6, to the extent that they can see God's grace towards them. They don't have the same conviction as the true elect. How do we tell the difference? Who knows? They don't get the full result, which is obviously salvation. They don't get a manifestation of his mercy, which is a type of mercy, I guess. Um, they get some form, but not the right manifestation of it. The mercy that would be effectual to being a elect. They don't have the root of faith, which is, I would say, pointing to the sower parable. And they don't per persevere. Calvin says we can get rid of this objection that God's grace is always enduring. Essentially, he's saying this is a special category of grace that isn't enduring because it is temporal. They are enlightened for a time, but their principle of faith proves to be like a vapor and vanishes. Hopefully I did that, that quote justice as well. Last quote from Calvin before we get into some further examination, but I hope we're steel, steel manning his perspective as much as possible. Calvin goes on to say, I obtained thereby the next conclusion, that the mercy of God is offered equally to those who believe and to those who believe not, so that those who are not divinely taught within are only rendered inexcusable, not saved. Some make a distinction here, holding that the gospel is saving to all as it regards its power to save, but not its effect of saving. Um, so this was given to me by a friend whilst kind of prepping for this. Uh, this quote isn't, wasn't used in any of the websites I found from, from non-Calvinists discussing Calvin's perspective on evanescent grace, nor did I find out any websites talking about evanescent, evanescent grace from a Calvinist perspective. I got this one from a friend and I'm going to steal a couple of the points that he made to me as we were discussing this. So from this quote, Calvin is explaining slash differentiating what effectual grace actually is. So love is an attribute of God. Grace comes from love. Mercy comes from grace. So God is love. So is gracious to his people, all people, and it extends mercy to them. So in effectual grace, God gives enough grace or mercy, depending on how you want to read that, to produce the exact effect, which is effectual grace that God wants. God wants most people to be reprobate, so God gives them enough grace to render them guilty without excuse, but not enough grace to be saved. So the mercy or grace given to them appears evanescent to the rest of us and even to themselves. So I hope that kind of makes sense as far as what Calvin's getting at. God's giving these different forms of grace. One form is effectual enough to actually save and one form is not effectual enough and just is effectual to, the, to God's desire, which is to make them not have an excuse to why they are not saved. Does that make sense? Originally, I was just attempting to steel man this position, and I came across James White have, having a video on this. The video is entitled Evanescent Grace. So, it's about a year old. I don't know exactly when it came out, but it's about a year old. He has it on his website as well under the category of Evanescent Grace. So, I originally was just going to use this as a way to steel man it, but honestly, he talks a lot, and there's a lot of good points that he brings up and a lot of things I want to address, so now I'm just going to play it, and I can address some of these comments. So we'll start here. 
around 29 to 22 in the video, which is linked in the description. And the non-elect won't come to the Lord in the first place. The problem is with evanescent grace and so many Calvinists departing from the faith over centuries, one can never know they're of the elect until the very end, right? Now, when I read this, I concluded that this was a trolling comment. White in the video has already addressed the tares and the wheat, and he's addressed the, the sower of the seeds. I'm not going to have him play all those. Obviously, you can look, look those up and what Calvinists believe and what non-Calvinists believe and everyone in between. Um, it's a parable that, one of the parables is one that Jesus explains to the disciples. We actually have that in Matthew 13. Um, so I don't think it's that confusing, but I don't think it's it's portraying what White and Calvin are portraying. But anyways, in this video at this point, White is responding to or talking about a Twitter exchange he had where this person that he was reading this comment was making the point that evanescent grace means that one can never know if they are elect until the very end of something. They have to persevere to the end to know that they were part of the elect, which I think is is probably a good question and comment and logical conclusion to this idea that one can be given grace that doesn't save them. But it's something you have to grant if you take the, the presupposition that total depravity is true and that we are born unable to believe the gospel effectually. So, anyways, that's, that's the stage for some of the other comments. I just wanted to get that out of the way so we know what he's talking about. Um, I think White actually goes on to prove this guy's point in the video, but let's just let the video speak for itself. Uh, so this is uh, book three, chapter two, section 10. If you, at least you can find stuff fairly easily in the Institutes. Picking it up, uh, it's actually in section 11, but I'm starting in section 10. Context is always sort of important and useful. Um, but as this shadow or image of faith is of no moment, so does unworthy of the name. How far it differs from true faith will shortly be explained at length. So he's talking about the fact that there are people who have a false faith, like Jesus taught in the parable that we just looked at. Because Jesus never defined how long it takes for the sun to scorch something, how long it takes for the thorns to, to choke something out. It can be fast. But as I, I think about two apostate men that I've known, uh, one, I knew really, really well because he was part of the church that I was in and then became a pastor of. And then one that I didn't know all that well, but he was better known outside of things. So I think of these two men. Uh, that was a period of time. That was a period of time before the the the... the the weeds did their thing. So first thing, White is presupposing that the parable of the seeds is Jesus talking, so in the seeds, is talking about those with false faith, which I don't think it actually is saying. It's talking, I think that might be one of the categories, but I don't think it's all the categories that are listed. And I think it's a presumption that it has to be, I think, false faith, 
in order for Calvinism to make sense with regard to those that walk away from the faith. So James White says that Jesus never defined how long it takes. Now, I don't think that's quite correct, but I think it's partially correct. Right? Matthew 13, 21 says, Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So we have two kind of statements of time here. We have for a while, which is how long he's enduring, and then it's an immediate falling away once some hardship arises with regard to the word of God. So I think we do have some idea here. Could we take this extremely literally and say, okay, well, if someone perseveres through persecution of being a believer, then obviously they're elect. They can't be part of this nevinescent grace, so then, then what happens if they fall away? That's a category that James White never actually addresses here. We'll talk about that more later. But remember he said that there was a troll comment where he said, not knowing you are truly elect until the very end. But James White here is saying that it's an indeterminate amount of time. You might go a really, really, really long time with this temporal evanescent grace. And eventually you will know that you are not saved and you had this grace that was just meant to further blind you was because, as, as evidenced by, that you're not saved. You reject Christ. So, any period of time eventually means that you're not saved if you walk away. All right, next clip. I will say this clip is also quite long, and I'm just going to interrupt it as I need to to make a point without letting him just go for nine minutes. So, here we go are enlightened into faith and truly feel the efficacy of the gospel with the exception of those who are foreordained to salvation. Yet experience shows that the reprobate are sometimes affected in a way so similar to the elect that even in their own judgment, there is no difference between them. There's no difference between the elect, those that believe that they're saved, and those that are non-elect that also believe that they are saved. I think that's going to be a problem here as we go along because well, we'll see what White says and what Spurgeon says. In order for you to have assurance of faith, you believe that you are saved. But he just said that their own just judgment testifies to being saved even though they are not. So you can't trust your judgment. There's going to be some contradictions here, but let's go on. Hence, it is not strange that by the apostle, a taste of heavenly gifts, and by Christ himself, a temporary faith is ascribed to them. So I'm, I'm not sure if he's specifically, when he talks about taste of heavenly gifts, talking about Hebrews 6 there, but it makes sense. And by Christ himself, a temporary faith is ascribed to them. He's talking about the parable that we just finished looking at in Matthew chapter 13. So I should also mention, White here is quoting Calvin as he goes through. So he's reading Calvin and then quoting and then making commentary on it. And I'm making commentary on both of them. So they tasted the heavenly gifts, right? This is, I think this is definitely a strong reference to Hebrews 6. So you tell me. Hebrews 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So it's kind of strangely structured. Just so it's 
it starts in verse 4. For, for it is impossible. Then a bunch of descriptions of these people, this people group in this category that have then fallen away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance again. So, if you take the Calvinist view of, of Hebrews 6, this is describing evanescent grace, this is describing uh, temporal believers, those that have that are missing the effectual grace of God to save them, but have the effectual grace of God to do all these other things that we'd commonly attribute to Christians. I would take this as a great example of those that are saved, reject Christ, and expel the Holy Spirit from within them, and they do not have a chance of repentance again because they have committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because it says it's unforgivable. That makes sense, doesn't it? At least in my framework, it does. Um, in Calvinist framework, it does not. To their, to their uh, benefit, of the doubt. Not, not that they truly perceive the power of spiritual grace and the sure light of faith, but the Lord, the better to convict them and leave them without excuse, instills into their minds such a sense of His goodness as can be felt without the spirit of adoption. Should it be objected that believers have no stronger testimony to assure them of their adoption, I answer that though there is a great resemblance and affinity between the elect of God and those who are impressed for a time with a fading faith, yet the elect alone have that full assurance, which is extolled by Paul, by which they are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. So they can feel God's goodness, something that we can't feel without the Holy Spirit, working in us, yet it's void of this, what he calls the spirit of adoption, this adoption into being children of God, to being elect. But somehow this temporal grace removes their excuse, which doesn't make any sense, because if they are unable to believe, they still have an excuse. Just, there's a hundred examples that I could bring up. But if you don't have the ability to not do something, I can't hold you accountable for not doing it. That doesn't make any sense. Logically, morally, ethically, biblically, it doesn't make sense. He talked about this great affinity and resemblance to the elect of God. So they are very, very, very similar to the elect of God. And the only thing that is different is they that the elect have the full assurance Whereas the effervescent graced people, the temporal graced people, the still reprobate people, but having some enlightenment, do not. But how do you know? How do you know? Because I guarantee you, because there are people that I know personally, and I, these people that White had talked about, I'm pretty confident they had assurance. They felt like they had assurance. But as he started this quote, their own just judgment is testifying to their assurance, but they don't have it because they're kind of fooled. They have this enlightenment that isn't all the way enlightening. And then he, right at the end of that clip, he says that they are they, those that are elect, they are able to cry, Abba, Father. So, and I'm sure White would affirm 1 Corinthians 12, 3, which says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is, is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So they are saying Jesus is Lord. 
And this is this weird carve out that they're making is, oh yeah, technically through the Holy Spirit, they're still doing that because they're unable to do that otherwise because they're totally depraved. So they can't do that out of the womb for the rest of their life unless two things happen. One, they're actually made elect or two, they're given this enlightenment that doesn't make them elect. So they're able to say that Jesus is Lord, but just doesn't do anything. It's not effectual. It's not Romans 10, 9, professing Jesus is Lord and believing that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. It's not that. Even though they can say it and they can believe it in their heart, isn't effectual for some reason. Oh, that's why. Because in order for, to make total depravity true, you have to think that. So how would I say those with, with the Holy Spirit say Jesus is Lord? Because they're saved. Because one of the things of being born again is the Holy Spirit enters you. So you are saying Jesus is Lord. It's, I think this is, this is mirroring Romans 10.9 where it says those are saved if they say Jesus is Lord. I don't think there's a time period where you say it and then Holy Spirit's like, okay, yep, it's been about an hour. I'll enter him now. I think it all happens at the same time. So, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 goes on, it gets at this idea of gifts where it says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Everyone being all that are in Christ. So here we have, again, this idea of gifts are being enabled by the Holy Spirit for those that are Christian. Because I don't believe that Paul here is making a distinction between saved and saved and appearance of saved. I think he's just saying Christians, those in Christ. Now, I stop just for a moment. This part they ignore. I'm not ignoring it at all. Clearly, I'm not ignoring it. I, I, I would imagine many of them just didn't bother look it up, don't care. He's probably right, though. I'm sure a lot of people don't care. And to James White's credit, a lot of non-Calvinists will just throw these ideas at him and at other Calvinists as a way to win, win rhetorical points. I think, honestly, it's a lot of the way that James White debates. He likes to score rhetor rhetorical points, but not actually score real points with actually making the case and responding to the objections of the the one that he's debating. That's my opinion. Will made a post about that on our Twitter account a couple days ago too. This is this is sort of becoming um, you know the the internet by its very nature uh, helps to create bad forms of argumentation that encourage a contextual stuff. I agree. <laughs> I agree. And I think that's part of the reason why we have the channel is because there's a lot of bad Christianity out there. There's a, especially a lot in Western Christianity, right? The whole point of the church split is talking about how we can have unity, how we can have mental toughness and how we cannot split churches because someone disagreed with our little nuanced belief of something. Whether that nuanced belief is what color the kitchen should be painted or how we reconcile uh, free will and scripture, how we understand the Trinity, alcohol, King James onlyism, what you wear, what music you play, all of it, right? So I will 
definitely throw James White a bone here that he is correct. The internet has not made this better. In many ways, it's made it worse. And there's a lot of armchair theologians. There's a lot of um, cage stagers that go out there and just want to just attack people. And they don't want to listen to reason or arguments. They just want to score a couple rhetorical points and walk away with their three or four Twitter likes and feel like they've accomplished something great today. If that's what you're living for in Christianity, you're a terrible witness. You are not engaged in any kind of discipleship, and you are just a you're just an internet troll. And I think you need a little bit of discernment. <laughs> now, there is a time for internet trolling, but I don't think you should just spend all your time on the internet doing that. And I agree with James White that you should read long-form written responses to things like this. You should understand everyone's perspective on this so you actually can make a reasoned well thought out decision don't succumb to uh, confirmation bias where you're like well this is what i believe let me go see if anyone else agrees with me and when the first article i find that agrees with me that will just prove to me that i'm right and i can move on with my life don't do that either because let's let's say let's even say that the first person who came up with this stuff acknowledged what calvin actually said and gave the reference and had read it himself and all the rest of the stuff what happens on the internet is you've got cut and paste. And you might find on a, on a blog someplace a nice long article that fairly engaged the subject. But if you want to share it on Twitter, you got to make that a whole lot shorter. I will say, I'm going to make a little dig on his fairly engaged the topic idea. You'll notice in this video... He just calls people that disagree with him synergists all the time. This is something that he does a lot in his videos. It's it's a I would say it's a form of ad hominem. It's something they are not claiming <laughs> typically, um, and they're defining synergism to mean that you need to help God to save you. Whereas those that he calls synergists, or maybe even someone would call Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. Just believe that God has set forth conditions for salvation. doesn't mean that you're helping God save you. You are just meeting the conditions of that salvation, which is repent and believe. And so you cut and paste. <laughs> and the cut part, you got to cut something out. And that ends up being the context. So please note what Calvin has just said. He, he has said, now, should it be objected? that believers have no stronger testimony to assure them of their adoption. That is this whole argument. This whole argument being used by synergists, this evanescent grace, we we'll get to that terminology here in a moment, but this evanescent grace argument is that Calvinists can never know. Now, this can only be used by certain synergists. So, the, that's the argument that he started with, right? Calvinists can never know. I think actually what a more accurate way of saying it would be, non-Calvinists believe that Calvinists do not have assurance because the only way they can know is if they persevere to the end. James White, Charles Spurgeon, they would say that you know because you know you're saved. And they would say believing in Christ and being on fire for him means that you're saved, which I would agree with. And then he's saying... However, if you have that and then you are no longer saved, you reject Christ, 
then actually you were never actually tr truly saved to begin with and you didn't really have assurance. You just had this mental ascent of assurance. You had this brief enlightenment where you thought incorrectly that you were saved, but you were not. Does that sound correct? That's that makes sense. Does it, are they really saying the same thing? I think so. Because the vast majority of synergists themselves decry the idea of particular of, of not only particular redemption, but of of having assurance of faith, of the perseverance of the saints. So most of the time, when this argument is being used, it's being used by people who think it's being used by the anti-lordship folks. The I've got my ticket punched concept of allegedly faith alone, uh, but it's not it's not enduring faith. It's not persevering faith. It's as long as faith existed for a moment, then it becomes saving faith. And so it can only be used by certain classes of synergists. Um, the rest, it, it just wouldn't be a relevant issue because they don't believe in this assurance of faith that Calvin believes in. Okay, so he's describing the category that I'm in here, and he's saying that the majority of synergists, which apparently is me, don't we decry having assurance of faith. And let me just say it here, I do not decry that. I believe that we have assurance of salvation if we are in Christ, if we meet the conditions of salvation, namely repent and believe. If I believe that Jesus is Lord, that he can save me from my sins, and that God raised him from the dead, then I am saved. I believe that, and I will be saved for all of eternity with that belief. But that's that belief has to be active. And it can't be something that I used to have and I've now rejected. I don't believe that there are any atheists in heaven. I truly believe that. I think scripture is absolutely clear on that. We do not, if there are no atheists in heaven. And I also believe that there are people that have true assurance of faith, but fall away because we have free will, because there's a lot that are in the world. We have Satan working against us. And I believe that if we reject the Holy Spirit, we blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, God has no compulsion to keep us saved. He goes, you deny me, I deny you. That's the sin I said is unforgivable. So he's saying, I'm in this class of non-Calvinists, anti-lordship salvation. Yep, that's me. I disagree with MacArthur's view on salvation, 100%. And I disagree with a lot of things in the way he conducts his ministry as well. This is a good argument because I believe that believing one can apostatize is the only way that you can have assurance. If you can know that you are saved, you can also know that you aren't saved. If you can't know those two categories, then you don't have assurance. So this idea that you were, you believe that you're saved and now you don't and you were never saved is essentially gaslighting people. You're gaslighting the, the apostates. And it goes directly against this idea of assurance. But I do agree it goes against some kind of assurance that Calvin believes in, which is this assurance that you were, before the world began, chosen specifically by name, outside of anything having to do with Christ, that you would be saved. 
nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing you believe will actually change that because no matter if you're a Muslim or a Jew, Gentile, uh, someone on a remote island, one day God's going to be like, regenerated, and now you are given faith and you must believe. You have no choice in it. And it makes sense. If you believe all of that, then of course you can't apostatize because it has nothing to do with you at all. You were chosen and you're just this meat puppet that's here essentially for the glory of God. Either hopefully you're the meat puppet that is there to glorify God through your belief and not the meat puppet that is there to have a terrible life and conduct evil for God's glory. I think God is maximally glorious already and he does not require anything from us to be glorious. God doesn't need rape to happen so that he can be more glorious and shows that how he can redeem out of bad things. I don't think that's true at all. So, but to James White's credit, I believe that it follows in Calvin's mind what he's saying about evanescent grace does follow and this is necessitated by the idea of total depravity and perseverance of the saints. Really the full tulip if you think about it. He says, so, um, yet the elect alone have that full assurance, which is extolled by Paul, and by which they're able and able to cry, Abba, Father. Therefore, as God regenerates the elect only forever by incorruptible seed, as the seed of life once sown in their hearts never perishes, so he effectually seals in them the grace of his adoption that it may be sure and steadfast. Okay. He says, God seals in the grace of our adoption that it may be sure and steadfast. But how does one know it's sure and steadfast? Rewind back to the original comment that he's responding to because it perseveres to the end. That's really the logical conclusion of what he's saying. How do you know it's steadfast? How do you know something's steadfast? Well, it's steadfast. <laughs> <laughs> it was lifelong. It was long-lasting. It was enduring. So, it's kind of a weird way, I think, to try to get out of that original comment because I think it is technically accurate. It, you have to presume you're in Christ in order to have steadfastness. And you'll hear Calvinists say that you pray and see if see if you find yourself in Christ. Because it's not something that you're having any influence on whatsoever. You're just going about your life. Eventually you're regenerated. And whoo, oh, I'm in Christ now. That's pretty cool. I guess I have faith. Talk to people that believe. No one has had that experience. I'm not aware of anyone personally that has been like, oh, you know what? I woke up today and found out I'm a Christian. That's pretty cool. You hear of conversion stories of people, even in their dreams, they dream that Jesus came to them and they wake up a believer but I don't think that's them going, oh, I guess I'm a Christian now. I've been regenerated. They, they were convinced through their dream of the truth of Christ. It always seems to be this evidence, this word of God works by convincing people that the story of the gospel is true, that Jesus is capable of saving you, that he rose physically from the dead and is has now paid for your sins with his blood. And you get each, his eternal life you through being in him, 
through faith. But in this, there is nothing to prevent an inferior operation of the spirit from taking its course in the reprobate. Meanwhile, so it's inferior. It's not, it can't be the very, it can't be regeneration. It can't be a new nature. It can't be regeneration, can't be new nature, because that's what your systematic says. You have this idea where you see people acting Christian, they're having spiritual gifts, they have been enlightened, they understand the word of God, they might even be pastors and preachers and evangelists and missionaries, but if they don't persevere, then it couldn't have been regeneration. So I think he kind of gives up the ghost here. He says what he's not supposed to say. It can't be regeneration because that's how their systematic works. Because if it was regeneration and then they don't believe, then we got a whole world of hurt. There goes limited atonement out the window. There goes perseverance of the saints. Is total depravity even true? The whole tulip thing is built off of total depravity. Once that, once that card falls, the whole, the whole deck falls over. And this is where modern Reformed theologians differ from Augustine. You need, to, you need to realize that in Augustine's view, as strong as strongly as he believed in predestination election, in Augustine's view, what he did is he had the idea that you could be temporarily regenerate by baptism, but only the elect were then given the gift of perseverance. And so of a certainty, the non-elect, even though regenerated, would fall away. I'm really glad he brought this up because this is a good distinction between Augustine and Calvin. And he's going to say what Calvin's perspective is here in a minute. But I just want to address this. It's an interesting point. So baptism, in Augustine's view, was what regenerated you. And some, the elect, were given a gift, not necessarily of faith, but of the gift of perseverance of faith. That's how they're kept saved, which is interesting, right? And it all comes from Augustine's development of this idea of original sin doctrine, that we are born guilty of Adam's sin. We talked about this about Psalm 51 recently. We talked about the sinlessness of Mary and that the Catholics and the Orthodox believe. These are all things that come up with regard to Augustine original sin. That idea, that premise, is what gave birth to total depravity that John Calvin espouses. It's required. So here's the distinction, though, between Calvin and Augustine. Augustine's believing that you are regenerated through baptism, but if you are not given the gift of perseverance, you will fall away and you will not be elect. You are not elect. It's kind of an interesting conundrum here. So I think I think Calvin's a little bit more logically accurate as far as the systematic goes. So kudos to Calvin. Okay, so that's that's a major difference. Uh, what Calvin is saying is very different from that. Uh, and so this inferior operation of the spirit is not taking and applying the uh, work of Christ in regenerating people. They're united with Christ, things like that. Uh, meanwhile, believers are taught to examine themselves carefully and humbly, lest carnal security creep in and take the place of assurance of faith. 
Very true. It's just amazing to me how many people just don't even want to read those passages of scripture. They will not allow for the balance that must exist in these issues. They just won't do it. It's an interesting point here, right? So obviously Calvin's point is it's all about effectiveness, the effectual grace. Some get effectual grace, some don't. We have really these two categories of grace that we're talking about. Effectual grace, which means you you will be elect, you are elect, you are saved, and non-effectual grace, which is effectual only to the point of making you responsible for an awareness of God and not following through to the end, which again, they are incapable of doing through this worldview anyways. But somehow they're held accountable for it regardless. But White here is saying that people avoiding avoiding certain texts is evidence of maybe having temporal or evanescent grace. That's quite a claim. I wish he would have parked longer on this subject. He doesn't, but that's quite a statement. How many people do you know that are pastors, evangelists, missionaries that have avoided certain texts they didn't understand it? This is why, like Dr. Michael Heiser says, the ones that don't fit in your systematic are not the ones to avoid, but the ones to study the most because they are probably the most important. I happen to agree with him, and I think that was a great way to put it. Uh, He says that in the Unseen Realm. But I don't think this idea of avoiding text is necessarily evidence of that because I think everyone does that to some extent, especially as you're learning and understanding, especially you get into these debates. Um, I certainly avoided... (laughs) As a Calvinist, for many years, some texts that certainly looked like we had free will, I definitely avoided the texts that made it sound like infant baptism wasn't the right way. Right, That was the first string that pulled for me, was paedo-baptism, and realizing that wasn't, wasn't a biblical concept. So, But here's the problem. We have people that are avoiding texts at some point in time in their life, but then don't, and they dive in. I don't want to avoid any text ever again. If I don't understand it or it doesn't make sense to my my systematic in my head, I want to study it. And I hope those that are watching do that too. Because I guess that's <laughs> that's evidence now that you are saved. <laughs> if you decide to not avoid any text, you have assurance and faith. That's what the takeaway should be here today. <laughs> Anyways, we'll let White continue. We're almost done with his clip. We may add that the reprobate never have any other than a confused sense of grace, laying hold of the shadow rather than the substance, because the spirit properly seals the forgiveness of sins in the elect only, applying it by special faith to their use. I just comment, and I am keeping my eye on the clock here. That's all we need to watch him. Obviously, watch the whole clip. Take him for 100% of his context. It's one hour and three minutes and five seconds, so... Not the longest video in the world. I'm sure you can watch the whole thing. Make sure that I'm portraying White in his comments in full context. But this idea that you have to, the, these people that have temporal grace, this evanescent grace, have this confused sense of grace. Um, I've taught Sunday school for several years in church. There were, I would say, the majority of the Sunday school class at one point in time or another was confused about a topic. Um, does that mean that they were not, they were not saved? <laughs> I think this is a real problem because the whole point of sanctification is growing in faith. In Hebrews 5, at the end of Hebrews 5 and beginning of Hebrews 6, 
the author is chastising the Jewish Christians for not moving on from the fundamental concept of Christianity, but going deeper into the meat. Um, he he uh, equates them with children. So, but we obviously see that that people stay very childlike in their faith for a long time, and be, many different people have different levels of sanctification, and that's where legalism comes from, is this idea that everyone has to be sanctified in the same way that you are. Well, when I was saved, I stopped drinking alcohol, so if you still drink alcohol, you're not saved. When I was saved, I decided to stop watching R-rated movies, but you watch R-rated movies, so not saved. It's a problem, right? So we've talked about legalism hundreds of times on this channel, I'm sure of it by now. But anyways, that's where that idea comes from. But different levels of sanctification, which might have different confusion now and then, I don't think is evidence necessarily of having temporal grace. When you really strip it down, what is the real evidence? Real evidence is you don't persevere to the end, according to Calvinism. So, I would say, um, also to kind of contrast this to what Spurgeon said, he said, I quote, I frequently meet with poor souls who are fretting and worrying themselves about this thought. How if I should not be elect? Oh, sir, they say, I know I put my trust in Jesus. I know I believe in his name and trust in his blood. But how if I should not be elect? Poor dear creature, you do not know much about the gospel or you would never talk so. For he that believes is elect. Those who are elect are elect unto sanctification and unto faith. And if you have faith, you are one of God's elect. I would say that statement very much disagrees with some of the things that White is saying and what Calvin is saying. How do you know that you're elect? Well, you believe. But what about this category of people that believe but aren't elect? That's a problem. That's what we're getting at, right? That's a whole thing. So I think, unfortunately, salvation in Calvinism is this presumption of the unknowable. Are you elect or not? And it's not based on anything that you believe. It's not based on anything that you do. It's not based on anything that has happened in your life whatsoever. The decision was made by God before even the entire world existed. So you just have to find if you are in Christ or not. It's like a, where's, a cosmic Where's Waldo book. I think it's a dangerous doctrine because I think it really gives people an excuse. It gives me an excuse to say, oh, I guess I'm not in Christ. I guess I can just live a sinful life. I looked and searched and found that I wasn't in Christ, so I guess I don't have to try. How sad is that? And there's definitely documented cases of that. So being confused or avoiding texts somehow is evidence, perhaps, of having this temporal faith. Spurgeon says, if you believe you're elect, but if you doubt this, you might not be. If you don't doubt, you are. <laughs> White doesn't seem to contend also with this idea of the, those with strong faith, the non-confusing faith, that also leave. I would argue those I know now with the strongest faith are the ones that have been tested. I think those that have gone through trials, those have gone through confusion, those have gone through times where they're like, how do I reconcile what I know in Jesus and what I see in the world? I think those those people seem to have incredible faith. And they've gone through a time period where what they are thinking and believing would, in White's mind, be evidence of potentially having temporal faith. So here's some key questions I think that have gone unanswered by this White's clip, and I think in Calvinism in general. When does regeneration happen? As it seems that you, some that have non-confused faith 
are those that have assurance and those with confused faith might be earlier in the walk in faith or might have evanescent grace. You don't know. So how do you know? Apparently, perseverance. How does one test their faith to know? That isn't something that White really addressed either, besides just saying, if you believe, then you are the elect. If you have assurance, then you have assurance. What does that sound like? Earlier in this clip, I don't play it, but White actually accuses this guy on Twitter of having the same arguments as the left. What's another argument the left has? Love is love. I read today on Twitter, uh, quote, said, love without love is hate. I was like, well, that's a ridiculous thing to say because it doesn't actually say anything. <laughs> you can't have a category of love that is loveless. You can't have a category of hate that is lacking of hate. Is hate without hate love? That doesn't make any sense. These self-referential ideas seem to just create definitional confusion and creates more unanswered questions. What is the another question that goes unanswered? What is the difference between what White is saying and the original troll, who we said was a troll, said, one can never know they are elect until the very end? What's the difference? Seems like White is saying we don't know the time period of those that are evanescent graced. The evidence of being elect is having assurance of faith. But you can have assurance of faith in your mind, but actually not be correct because that's a, still a characteristic of having evanescent grace. Seems to be a confusion. If you're confused, maybe it's because it's illogical. Or it might be because you're not saved. <laughs> no, I'm just trolling. Okay, so what, what do I believe? I believe that you can know if you're saved, and I think you can know if you aren't. You can know you're in Christ, you can know you are no longer in Christ, and you can know that you are never in Christ. With White and Calvin's view, the reprobate, the unbeliever, is able to know he's not saved, but the believer is not able to know that they are saved. It's this weird problem where the, the unbeliever actually possesses a higher degree of knowledge. They can know that they're not saved, but the believer has to just, they might be evanescent graced, or they might be elect. Time will tell. That's a problem. And what they said is, what White said is time, they believe, is undefined on how long this takes. You can mimic all aspects of a Christian's life and not be saved. That should be concerning, especially to those that believe in total depravity, because they don't believe the gospel is effectual, but somehow they can have an effect, just not an effectual effect. <laughs> they believe that the unbeliever is unable to believe. The gospel is ineffectual, but somehow for some, it's effectual to understand God, feel God's goodness, taste the heavenly gifts, have faith, can believe in their heart and mind that they are saved, but are not, and never were. And the only evidence of that is that they end up not saved. And they believe that they were saved the whole time. Does that sound like a weird conundrum? Does that sound like a weird category? That doesn't seem to make sense? Because it should. <laughs> And we still see this God of Calvinism seems to be okay with punishing those for his grace not being effectual, even though it was never supposed to be for them. That's a concerning category. So what do I do? I just take people at their word. I realize it isn't my job to judge the hearts of man. I can judge my own heart 
and I try to judge my heart as non-hypocritically as possible and try to submit myself to the teachings of God in Scripture and try to make sure that I have right theology. And I try to do as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So, Paul's essentially chastising these people to go, don't you realize that Christ is in you? Don't you realize that you have faith? Don't you understand what you're talking about? Why are you having these doubts? Or you might fail to meet the test, which means that you can know that you are not saved. But how can someone know that they're not saved if they don't understand effectually the gospel? So, I would ask Mr. White this, Dr. White. How does one fail this test? If they don't possess enough grace for the gospel to be effectual, how can they know they don't meet that test? And you can't know if you can meet the test, then it's a really crazy test to take. Imagine taking a test that you don't know if you pass or not. Do I think people have faith that is evanescent, that is that it doesn't last? Yes, I do. Do I believe this is a form of grace that God has caused for himself, by himself, to have some strange punishment in a way to further blind those that are already blind in some odd way to fit Romans 1 into Calvinism? No, I do not. So, I hope I did the concept of evanescent grace justice. I hope it made sense. I hope it at least steel-manned at least what White was, was saying. I hope I played enough of his clips that to understand it. If I didn't, please watch the whole thing and make a decision for yourself. Because guess what? You got the free will to do that. So anyways, thanks for watching. I appreciate everyone who subscribes to Church Split and enjoys the content and, and engages with us. Even if you don't enjoy it, I, I really appreciate those that engage with us in the comment section that talk about it in our discussion group. I appreciate those that support us on Patreon, uh, especially now that we have two studios, so a few, few extra costs. Um, but I really appreciate those that take God's Word seriously, that want to deepen their faith and their understanding, and are okay with challenging their own echo chamber. So if you're a Calvinist watching this, I hope that you challenge your own echo chamber here. Does this make sense? Does evanescent grace, this category make sense? Do you think that you might be evanescent grace? Well, I have news for you. If you reject Calvinism, then you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but all kidding aside, I, I really appreciate James White making this video so that we could at least attempt to steel man the position. Um, really thankful that we have quotes from John Calvin that we can see what he actually said on this topic. And I appreciate the friends that helped to consult on this episode. So anyways, this has been The Church Split. Take care and God bless. And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this, we gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out Good Ranchers. Right now, go to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Knowles. Or that. We also want to thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about y'all, yes. but I got a new shipment of soap yes, in. I did. Yes, I Yes, sir. And it was great. Or this. Hi, guys. My name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. To get to that momentarily, first, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware that your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored? Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics 
with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video content a whole month. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month.